Okay, friends, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open it to the book of Acts. We've been going through Acts for several weeks now, and we've come to Acts chapter 23 today. title of our message here this morning is Faithful God, Faltering Witness. But I wonder, have you ever blown a perfectly good witnessing opportunity? You knew the Holy Spirit was nudging you to speak to someone, but you just couldn't muster the courage. Maybe you tried to witness once, but you've done like I have, and you promptly inserted your foot in your mouth. Or perhaps it was a tough question posed by a skeptic that left you stumped. I once heard a story about a barber who got saved, and as a new Christian, he was so on fire for the Lord Jesus. The barber was so excited about sharing his faith that he couldn't wait for his first customer to arrive the next day. And so the barber's first customer came into the shop, and the man asked for a haircut and a shave with the straight razor. And as the barber lathered the man up with shaving cream and tilted him back in the chair, he pulled out that straight razor and he started sharpening it on the whetstone. And he said, friend, if you were to die today... Uh, would you be ready to meet the Lord? And the man saw the barber sharpening that razor and his eyes got big as saucers and he didn't say anything. He just got right up and bolted out the door. So <laughs> that's a tip of what not to do in witnessing. But if you've ever messed up trying to serve the Lord, then I think you're going to be encouraged by how God picked up the Apostle Paul when he had fouled up a golden witnessing opportunity that we read about here in Acts 23. Now, just a little backstory. We have caught up with Paul in Jerusalem. He's just given his testimony of Christ to a murderous mob of Jews. Now, we know that the gospel did little to assuage or quell the bloodthirsty crowd because they cried out, Take him away, he's not fit to live. Paul is probably black and blue from the beating that he received. And had it not been for the actions of a Roman centurion pulling Paul away from this lynch mob, it's probably certain that he surely would have been stomped to death by this angry crowd. Now, after spending a night in custody of a Roman commander, Paul is now given a hearing before the highest governing body in the Jewish society, a group known as the Sanhedrin. They were 70 elders made up of two major groups within Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were led by the high priest. And the Sanhedrin ruled in court cases and made important decisions for the Jewish people. Now keep in mind that as Paul stands before this group, the Sanhedrin, this is the same group that tried and put Jesus to death. Now Paul stands before his countrymen to defend his case in Acts 23. But this golden witnessing opportunity, this moment that he has been looking forward to, goes wrong. And it all surrounds something that Paul said. A slip of the tongue, you might say. Now in this passage, I think what we learn are three important lessons about the faithfulness of God. This is a message about a faltering witness and a faithful God. So if you've ever blown it, if you've ever messed up, 
If you've ever fallen on your face trying to serve God, this passage is going to be an encouragement to you because it tells us that your ministry isn't over, God still has a plan for you, and you're not damaged goods. Now, what do we learn here today? Number one, I want you to see this. Because God is faithful, He forgives our failures. Because God is faithful, He forgives our failures. Now, what Paul hoped would be a civil debate among his peers quickly moved into dysfunction. Notice verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So they didn't get off on the right foot, did they? And after Paul's cheek stung from that cheap blow, you can imagine Brother Paul probably being a little hot-headed, a big old vein popping out on his forehead. And in the heat of the moment, Paul lost his cool. And in verse 3, watch this, he blasts back with both barrels. Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you white-washed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, at that moment, Paul has lost his audience. Now, actions are important, but in many ways, it's our reactions that tell people if we are really being controlled by the Spirit or by the flesh. And as a parent of young children, I am often reminded by my reactions to them that God still got a lot of work to do on this old boy because sometimes the anger gets the best of me, just like it did here in Paul's situation. Now, when Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, that's a euphemism that was an expression to mean you're a hypocrite. In fact, Jesus used that same term in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27 to describe the Pharisees. He said of them, they are like whitewashed tombs who outwardly look clean, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. Now it is interesting that Paul did speak prophetically here when he made this announcement because God would eventually smite this wicked man you see, when the Jews revolted against Rome in about the year 66 A.D., this man, Ananias, had to flee for his life because he had known ties to the Romans. And when the Jewish freedom fighters found him, he was cowering in an aqueduct on Herod's palace, and they killed him. So in time, this man would get exactly what Paul was talking about here. But one reason that we know that Paul was an heir is how he pulled back in verse 4 after he learns that he has just insulted the high priest. Look at what the text says. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul is quoting there from the book of Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28, and he admits that he has violated God's prohibition against slandering a ruler. Now you'll also notice that Paul's angry outburst here at this moment was quite the opposite of the way Jesus handled the same situation when he was under pressure. 
Isaiah 53, prophetically looking forward to Christ, says that He, like a sheep, was silent before His shears. 1 Peter 2.23 says, While being reviled, He did not revile in return. And while suffering, He uttered no threats. Sometimes the greatest measure of strength is not giving somebody a piece of your mind, but holding back and pinching that tongue and not saying what first comes to mind. Now at this point, I think that Paul realized that any chance that he had at getting a fair trial had gone down the tubes. And that is why Paul changes his tactics midstream and he diverts the attention off of himself. Look what he says in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now he wasn't lying there, but boy was he stirring up something. He was muddying the water intentionally. Verse 7. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul, realizing the situation, diverts the attention away from himself and uses one of the oldest debate tactics in the book, the old red herring, to distract from him. Now, Paul's escape strategy worked. But, notice, he had squandered the moment that he had been waiting for all these years. Oh, how he longed for a chance to preach Christ to the Jewish elites, and yet he mucked it up with his own reaction. Now, can you picture Paul now sitting in those lonely barracks? He's overwhelmed with regret. A sense of failure is weighing heavy upon him. Uh, Don't you know that Satan was all over Brother Paul in this moment? I believe that uh, right now, Paul felt lower than a snake's belly. But I want you to see something here in verse 11. Christ at that moment appeared to him to encourage him and reassure him, Paul, your ministry isn't over. Verse 11, the following night, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Praise God. Friend, if you have ever fallen on your face trying to do a good work for God, this is a passage that ought to lift you up out of the doldrums. Because Paul, probably the greatest Christian Whoever lived, he messed up. And yet the Lord didn't come down on him with a condemnation, but with a commendation. Look at what he said. Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. What was he talking about? The previous chapter, 
chapter 22 where he stood there before the angry mob and he told them about the Damascus Road experience and how Jesus had touched him and how God had blinded him and how the Lord used him mightily to reach the Gentiles. Oh friend, but as I read this passage, I am greatly encouraged because we all fail. There have been times when I've failed trying to serve God and we think and say things like this. I know God has forgiven me but I haven't forgiven myself yet. Have you ever said something like that before? I have. And then it is like the Holy Spirit knocks on my door and says, Hey, what are you saying, man? But how dumb is that? Why am I holding on to a higher standard than God? God knows I failed, but He don't dwell on it. He doesn't cast me aside. Everyone stumbles and falls from time to time. But the difference is how and where we fall. Some stumble into a pit of guilt and shame and regret, and others stumble into the arms of a faithful, forgiving God who says, I'm not looking at you with shame. I called you, and I'm still going to use you. You see, what God does is He casts our sin and our failure into the sea of His forgiveness, and then He posts a big sign that says, No fishing! It's out of bounds. I'm thankful that those Scriptures are there to assure us. 2 Timothy 2 and 13, Paul said, If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. First John 1 John 1.9, a passage I've had to go to many times if we confess our sins. He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I like that little word, all. All means all, and that's all that all can ever mean. Everything that's ever been done. Praise the Lord. In his autobiography, Billy Graham tells a story where one of his greatest failures led to a turning point in his life. It happened in 1953 when Dr. Graham was in the midst of a crusade in Dallas, Texas. And here's what happened. He says this, One night my preaching did not seem to have any spiritual depth or power. But after a meeting with a friend named John Bolton who was close to me, he and I took a walk together and he confronted me. Now, how'd you like to stand up to Billy Graham and correct his preaching? Here's what his friend said. Billy, you didn't speak about the cross. How can anyone be converted without having at least a single view of the cross where the Lord died for us? Billy, you must preach about the cross. Billy said, as he thought about that rebuke, he said, I resisted it. At first. But he said as he went to bed that night, he tossed and turned and he cried and he sweated and there was no rest for him. But he said he woke up the next morning and he knew that rebuke was right. And he said this, he said, I made a commitment never to preach again without being sure that the gospel was complete and clear as possible. And then he said, I found the calm peace of God once again, one thing that I love about this passage is look at what Jesus did. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Oh, praise God. Where was Paul? He was in a dirty Roman barracks. 
When was Paul? It was in the middle of the night. Hey friend, I don't think there's a place where the grace of God can't find us. By the way, Jesus has a knack for showing up in the middle of the night. You remember when the disciples were in that storm-tossed boat? They thought it was over. Uh, The thing was about to capsize. The winds and waves were coming in on them. And Jesus came walking across the water like a super highway. He came to them and you know what He said? The very same words that He said to Paul in Matthew 14, 27, Fear not, have courage. God knows where you are. God knows how to find you. Uh, Winds and waves don't deter Him. Prison bars can't keep Him back. He walks by hospital beds and down dark corridors at night. I'm here to tell you He's found this preacher in the middle of the night and He's lifted up my head and said, I ain't done with you yet. Stop crying. Stop sulking. It's not over. There's still more to your story. You see, Paul had been delivered from jail before. But this time, the Lord got in jail with him. (laughs) If God doesn't deliver us from trouble, friend, I fully expect Him to meet us in the midst of it. And so I see this morning, number one, that because God is faithful, He forgives our failures. That's shouting ground right there. And then number two, I want you to see this. Because God is faithful, He foresees our future. He foresees our future. We're still in verse 11. Notice the last part of this statement. Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Then watch this. (laughs) So you must testify also in Rome. Did you see that? Not only did... Jesus gave Paul a commendation, but He gave him a fresh commission. He said, you will also bear witness of me in Rome. In other words, Paul heard these words from God. Hey, I'm not done with you yet. I know you've learned a hard lesson today. That's why I'm sending you back out there wiser and more humble because your work is not done, friend. Now look at how precious the timing of this was. Everything about Paul's situation indicated that it was going to end right there in Jerusalem for him. It didn't look like Paul was going to get out of Jerusalem alive, much less make it to Rome. But I'm telling you that God knows what we need to hear and He knows when to give it and when we need to hear it. We serve A second chance Savior. Just go through the Scriptures and notice how many times God used failures and flops and broken people. Abraham and Sarah messed up with Ishmael. But God gave them a second chance and He sent them Isaac. Hey, the same David who wrote Psalm 23 in fellowship with God was the same David who was begging for forgiveness from God when he wrote... Psalm 51, Uh, Jonah, he ran from God, and then he ran into God, and then he started running for God. And the Bible says in Jonah 3, 1, that the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. He's a second chance Savior. Uh, Peter started out as sand, 
He denied the Lord, but Jesus saw his true character and he ended up as stone declaring the Lord in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. You see, friends, in the hands of a second chance God, our failures don't have to be final. You see, my God only works with broken things, broken hopes, and broken hearts, and broken homes. And what the world looks at with disdain and says that's damaged goods, it can't be used to throw it to the side, it's garbage and trash. God looks at it with favor and He says, I can make something beautiful out of that broken life such that when people see the finished product, they'll know that it came from me. Uh, didn't the prophet say that my plans are not to harm you, but to prosper you and to give you a hope? And a future. You see, we're about yesterday. We're about what we did back then that would scar our record and look bad on us. God's not about the past. God is about what's next for me. Many of us know that line from the hymn Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Maybe you know that lyric, but you don't know the inspiration behind John Newton's lyrics. Did you know there were at least two occasions when the hand of God providentially spared the life of John Newton? First, in his days of slave trading, his captain pulled him from duty on a ship that was headed for Africa. That boat that he was supposed to be on sank, and the man who took his place drowned. Then the second time was on the night of Newton's conversion when he was aboard a stormy boat. And during the storm, he was sent below deck to perform a task. And the man who took his station on deck was washed overboard. And that's the inspiration for that line in Amazing Grace. And what Newton said he believed was that God had saved him for a higher purpose. And his reasoning was simply this, God still must have work for me to do. I should be dead. But God foresees the future. And we know that part of that higher purpose was the job of writing the lines to that beloved hymn. Listen to Brother Charles Spurgeon on this passage. He makes a great comment in Acts 23, 11. Listen to what he says. He says, Come then, ailing and desponding one, there is no use lying down in despair, for a life of usefulness is still in reserve to you. Up, Elijah, no more ask to die, for God has further errands for you, servant. Neither the lion nor the bear can kill you, O David, for you have yet to fight a giant and cut off his head. Be not fearful, O Daniel, of the rage of Babylon's drunken king, for you have yet to outlive the rage of hungry lions." Therefore, lift up that head that is hanging down, child of God. You must stand before Caesar. A divine decree ordains for you greater and more trying service as you have yet seen. A future, he said, awaits you and no power on earth or under earth can rob you of it. Therefore, be of good cheer. He sees the future. He knows. He sees 
He cares. Hey, listen to me, child of God today. Maybe you need to be lifted up by this. If God brought you out of that trial, it's because your work for Him is not finished yet. If God healed your body and made you well, it's because your mission isn't complete yet. You still have time to tell your story. If God saved you a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, it's because He has a future for you. If God has brought you thus far, mark it down, friend, He's not going to give up on you yet. Hey, if you're not dead, that means God's not done with you. And so you see, because God is faithful, He will forgive our failures. And then number two, because God is faithful... He foresees our future. Am I preaching to anybody out there today? Man, I hope this is hitting you where you need it. Then number three, because God is faithful, He will frustrate our foes. Because God is faithful, He will frustrate our foes. Now, Paul has been given an ironclad promise from the Lord Jesus. Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. Now, when God makes a promise, heaven and earth can pass away, but His Word will be fulfilled. Amen? And the rest of the chapter shows how God providentially protected Paul to get him from Jerusalem to the next step in his journey, Caesarea, and then ultimately Rome. Now, that same group that nearly bludgeoned Paul to death, they hatch a plot to have Paul assassinated. Look in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until... We have killed Paul. Boy, you talk about being serious. Verse 15, Now therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So you see, they had hatched this plot. When Paul is transferred, hey, we're going to jump him and it's going to be lights out for Paul. Now, what's so fascinating here? is that these are the guys who are supposed to be the preachers, the ones who know the Scriptures, right? <laughs> well, God was already ten steps ahead of them. And the Lord has already worked out some travel arrangements for Paul that they don't know about. You see, God is behind the scenes and He moves all the scenes that He's behind. And notice now the elaborate steps that God engineers so that He can move Paul out of harm's way and to his destination. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. There was a little boy hanging around the corner, just happened to be Paul's nephew, who heard them speaking in hushed voices about what they were going to do to Paul. Accident or divine appointment? You know the answer, don't you? And then look what happened. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. 
And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath. Verse 22, So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one what you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea At the third hour of the night also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. And you can read the letter in your own spare time. But we find out that once the letter gets to Felix, we find out that Paul is delivered safely. And when they come to Caesarea, verse 33, and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul to him, a God's more reliable than the post office about getting his children uh, where they need to be, the destination that he has set out for them. Now notice all the elaborate steps that have to take place to get Paul from point A to point B. Paul's nephew had to be at the right place at the right time to hear the word of that conspiracy. Claudius, the Roman centurion who was entrusted with Paul's care, knew about Paul's Roman citizenship and had the authority to do something to get him to safety. Verse 19. And then we read that Paul was given an armed escort out of Jerusalem by the Roman army. You do the math on that. The Bible tells us that there were 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 cavalry, and two centurions. That's 472 bodyguards, according to verse 23, for one man. President Trump doesn't even have that kind of detail on the secret service. And then to beat it all, Claudius writes a letter to the governor of Felix vouching for Paul in verse 26 through 30. You can go back and read it for yourself. I believe that as Paul left the barracks and was headed out, the man had a big smile on his face because he knew the inside story. Jesus had visited him the night before and said, Don't worry, Paul. I've got it taken care of. You're getting out of here because I've got something for you to do in Rome. And the men who plotted against Paul were powerless to thwart an almighty God. Friend, when you have the promise of God, things can be looking dark around you. Life can be full of more questions than answers. People can be talking about you, but if you have the promise of God, you can lean on it and it will not break. In fact, I think here's what God did. He tapped the Roman army on the shoulder and said, Excuse me, can I borrow your services for just a minute? I have an assignment for you to do. Transfer my man Paul from one city to another. You see, because God is faithful. Amen. He will frustrate our foes. Friend, that's the providence of God. The hand of God in the glove of human events working invisibly and powerfully. And you know what? 
we can approach life with the same assurance. My life is in His hands and in order for them to get to me, they've got to go through my God first and get His permission to do so. Oh my, the things that God has done for His people to get them where He wanted them to go. What God won't do for His children Why He's opened a door that no man can shut. He's parted seas. He's crumbled city walls. He's closed the mouth of lions and turned the heart of the king. Friend, listen to me. If God has an assignment for you, He'll order your steps. He'll put people in your path. Uh, He'll protect you with His mighty angels. He'll guide you by His Holy Spirit. He'll provide for you manna from heaven along the way. Listen, my God knows every pathway through the valley. My God knows where all the refreshing springs are and how to get you there. Uh, My God knows what the enemy's up to and He's ten steps ahead because He is the Good Shepherd. Somebody say amen today. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. And that's the foundation that Paul had for his life as they took him out of the city that day. I believe he could breathe that fresh air, feel that sun on his back because he had the promise of God. What a passage. What a Savior. Let me bring it all together for us here today. Does God still do things like this? Well, I wouldn't be preaching this way if I didn't believe it. I was reading this week a book by a pastor named Mark Goodyear. He tells a story in his book. He's out one evening going door to door, inviting people to church, handing out Bibles and tracts. The whole day, he said it had been one door slammed in his face after another. He got to his last call. Knocked on the door and waited. He knew someone was home because he said, I could hear movement inside. He knocked again. Nothing. He persisted. Kept knocking. Ask, seek, knock, right? Matthew 7. Pastor Mark didn't even have a chance to speak. Guy opened the door, looked at him, said, go away. Took the track out of his hand, closed the door. Well, Pastor Mark said, I went home a failure. And he spent all night beating himself up. Lord, what what could I have done differently? Maybe I, I shouldn't have knocked on that man's door. Lord, was I out of your will? He tossed and he turned. He couldn't get that last man off of his mind. I mean, he didn't even get to say anything to him. He just grabbed that tract out of his hand and slammed the door in his face. Well, he couldn't get that man off of his mind. He felt like the Lord wanted him to go back to his house. So he said he waited a week, went back, knocked on the door. Immediately the door opened. The man said, I've been waiting for you to come back. Come inside. And he welcomed him and he was friendly and warm. And he said, Pastor Mark, come upstairs. I want to show you something in my attic. And Mark Goodyear said that as he walked up those stairs, he rounded the corner and looked. And the man showed him a noose hanging from the rafters. 
And you know what he told the pastor? He said, when you knocked on my door last week, I had my head inside this noose. And I was about to jump off of that box right there. He said, but you kept knocking. You kept on my door. And I took my head out of that noose and I went down and I answered the door. He said, I ripped that tract out of your hand and I went back upstairs to kill myself. He said, but I sat down on that box and decided I'd read the track first. And it was a simple gospel message of John 3.16 on that track. And he said, I've been waiting for you to come back because I want to tell you that I'm so glad that God messed up the plans for my life. And I want to tell you thank you for coming and knocking on my door. Friend, he's faithful. When we think we failed, He's faithful to forgive us. He's faithful to give us a future and to frustrate our foes. Do you know this God? Do you know this Savior today? I pray that you do. If you don't, I'd ask you to repent of your sin today. Come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See His mercy, His love, His compassion Poured out for you, friend. He'd want to save you and give you a hope and a future. A new life, a new heart. He can do that for you today. No matter how bad you've failed, no matter what shambles your life is in, He's a faithful God. And I'm going to pray today. And If you need the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd ask you to pray something like this. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we love you today. And we thank you, God, for Jesus Christ. I thank You, Lord, that Jesus came and He died in my place. I believe that His blood can forgive all my sin. Lord, I'm a sinner. And I pray that You'd forgive me today. Lord, I repent of my sin. I turn from my wicked ways. Save me today, Lord. Come into my life. Clean me up. I thank You, Jesus, for rising from the dead. Lord, I want eternal life and a new heart today. Will You save me, Lord? If you prayed that prayer, I hope that you did and that you meant it. The Bible says that he who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you prayed that prayer today, I'd like for you to Leave your name and your email or some way to contact you in our comment section and we'd love to get up with you later and encourage you in the Lord. But as we finish today, we close out with this prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, God, for the encouragement that it gives Your saints. And I pray, Lord, for that discouraged one out there, Lord, that You'd lift them up today and remind them how faithful You are. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.